Welcome to JFK and the Enduring Secret. I'm your host, Jeff Crudell. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the podcast. Today's episode is episode 102. Before we go any farther, any deeper into the Oswald story, I think it's appropriate to outline the most important elements of his life. Give his personal chronology and background in the form of a high-level overview and include the most important aspects of his personal history. You have to know a little bit about Oswald to put each of the individual stories about him in proper context. But I want to do that in a way that, well avoids too much detail at first, just giving enough background and context to view the wander that was Oswald's life, and do it in the right light. If we do this right, then no matter what the topic is that we subsequently decide to turn to and discuss about Oswald, whether it's a flashback or a flash forward from where we are at at that moment, you should still be able to place it into the overall context of his personal history. Why is all this important? Well, simply put, it's about the matriculation of a young man that was born into a rather imperfect circumstance, and probably because of what happened in those early and formative years, just like it is for all of us, there are reasons behind who we are. Each of us. Some of it is hard-coded into our DNA, and some of it is a product of our environments and how things went for each of us and where we landed in life, and what influences were or were not there. And for some, well, whether history was thrust upon them. You get my point here. A lot has been said about this young man, Oswald, and the central question of the JFK assassination debate is really very simple. Whether the man charged with a crime, Lee Harvey Oswald, really did it. I think there was a good chance that a good set of lawyers could have gotten Oswald off in a court of law in this country, based on the available evidence. But that, by no means, equates to whether he was guilty in this case. There is more for us to ponder there before a conclusion on that can take place. But, for you as a juror, perhaps for you as an American, or really any citizen of the world, That is truly the question. Did he do it or not? The question of a conspiracy is equally important, and he may not have fired the shot, but still have been quite involved in a criminal conspiracy to kill the president. If he was not involved at all, then certainly he really was a patsy. As I say, more to come. This man is somewhat of an enigma for sure, but try we must to understand his background and analyze who he was. I might be telegraphing too much here, but you may be like me as you wander through these episodes. Sometimes I wandered through this part of the story and reviewed the evidence and I stopped for a gut check as certain things resonated, as only they can inside of our heads and our hearts our minds acting with the sixth sense that we all have at the crossroads of understanding, where, at just such a moment, our collective intellect and heart and mind and soul see clearly the absolute truth. 
if only based on a gut feeling, and then only to have that conclusion overturned at the next moment of pause. That's, to me, a little like the game of love in life. You know, in those moments when you never really know what the verdict is and whether you will still be loved tomorrow. Well, just like I've said before, the heart is a lonely hunter, and the search for the truth in the mystery that is Oswald, well, it's a similar pursuit in another form, another form of a lonely hunt. (laughs) I'll be interested in your gut on this one. Having said that, most of the discussion contained in the next few episodes comes from Chapter 7 of the Warring Commission Report, as we describe the events known to the Commission, events which the Commission believed most clearly reveal the formation and the nature of Oswald's character. I pick and choose the elements of that chapter, supplementing it where I need to in an attempt to summarize the events of Oswald's early life his experience in New York City and in the Marine Corps, and his interest in Marxism. In these next few overview episodes, we will also touch upon his defection to the Soviet Union in 1959 and his subsequent return to the United States and his life here in the U.S. after June of 1962, a period where he lived both in New Orleans and Dallas. We'll touch upon many things, but we'll leave much detail for later, for separate individual episodes where we can dive deeper. And a good example of that is Oswell's alleged attempt to kill General Walker and his unsuccessful attempt to go to Cuba in late September of 1963 via Mexico. And of course, all the nefarious goings-on in New Orleans, too. A period and a place where it sure does appear that Oswald had some form of intelligence connections and surely had involvement with characters like David Ferry and Guy Bannister. It really is good stuff and should keep your attention and keep you entertained as we wander through this story that is Lee Harvey Oswald. So, without further ado, let's listen to episode 102 of JFK, The Enduring Secret. Let's start with the early years. Lee Harvey Oswald's father died about two months before Lee was born in New Orleans, and his birth date was October 18, 1939. No doubt coming into the world without a father is not a good thing, but not necessarily fatal. Regardless, it did have an impact on Lee's life both directly and indirectly. And the Warren Commission spent plenty of time discussing it in the report. That death put Lee's family, frankly Lee's mother Marguerite, in a financial bind. But let's back up for a second and replay the tapes, so to speak, from the beginning for Mother Marguerite. Marguerite married John Pick Jr. in 1929, and she had her first child, also named John, that is John Edward Pick, in 1932. John Pick turned out to be a half-brother to Oswald. And that is because Marguerite's marriage to Pick, Sr., didn't last. She was out of the marriage pretty quickly. Marguerite divorced Pick, and then, not long after, maybe about six months, in 1933, Marguerite married again, this time to a man she had come to know through her sister, 
Robert Edward Lee Oswald, who was a premium collector for the Metropolitan Life Insurance Company. Marguerite and Robert Edward Lee Oswald would have two sons together. Robert was also the name of their first son, and he was born in 1934. And then Lee came along five years later in 1939. Again, just two months after the death of his father. There were three boys now in the house, all of them now without a dad. John, who was seven, Robert, who was five, and the young baby, Lee Harvey Oswald. The Warren Commission, in telling this part of the story, would emphasize the coldness that the mothers seemed to extend to the boys at this moment in their young lives. Reminding her sons that they were orphans and that the family's financial condition was poor. She didn't just tell them that they were poor. She took action. She placed John Pick and Robert Oswald, the two older boys, in an orphan's home. And she herself went to work attempting various things, including the selling of insurance. Lee would prove to be too much for his mother to take care of, even after the other two boys were out of the house. And he, too would be sent to the orphan's home shortly after Christmas at the end of 1942, right smack dab in the middle of World War II. Now, all three of Marguerite's children were out of the house and in the hands of a third party, three, eight, and ten years of age by then. In those first three years, Lee was cared for principally by his mother's sister, by babysitters, and by his mother, and in the commission's words, Marguerite did take care of her son when she had time for him. Later in this series on Oswald, we'll hear from Marguerite herself. She was quite visible after the assassination, and there is much in the way of recorded history with her. Lee didn't stay long in the orphan's home. About a year or so, Marguerite Oswald withdrew Lee from the orphan's home, and that's the point at which she decided to move to Dallas. Again, Lee was a little over four years old at that point. About six months later, she also withdrew John Pick and Robert Oswald. The commission believed the action she took to retrieve her children was taken in anticipation of her marriage to Edwin A. Ekdahl, which took place in May 1945, right at the end of World War II. The two older boys didn't get a chance to stay at home long after their mother brought them home and then remarried. But of course, what was next for them again wasn't their choosing. In the fall of that same year, John Pick and Robert Oswald, Lee's two older brothers, were now sent to a military academy where they stayed, except for vacations until the spring of 1948. They came home then, in 1948, at the tender ages of 16 and 14, respectively. Lee was nine when they came home. Lee Oswald remained with his mother and Ekdahl during those three years from 1945 to 1948, a period beginning when Lee was about six years old and ending, as I said, when he was about nine years of age. The commission acknowledged that Oswald became quite attached to Mr. Ekdahl during this time frame. John Pick, who testified that he thought Lee found in Ekdahl the father that he never had. That situation, however, was short-lived, for the relations between Marguerite Oswald and Ekdahl were stormy, and they were finally divorced after several separations and reunions in the summer of 1948. Lee 
was again fatherless at the age of nine. After the divorce, Mrs. Oswell complained considerably about how unfairly she was treated, dwelling on the fact that she was a widow with three children. The Warren Commission would point out that her oldest son, John Pick, would testify to the contrary and that he personally did not think her position was worse than that of many other people. In the fall of 1948, she told John Pick and Robert Oswald that she could not afford to send them back to the military school after the divorce. And she asked John Pick, the oldest, to quit school, quit school entirely in order to help support the family. The oldest son, John Pick, did exactly that, but only for a short period of time, about four months, basically during the fall of 1948. Marguerite didn't stop there. Apparently, she also falsely swore that John Pick was 17 years old so that he could join the Marine Corps Reserves, basically because compensation was involved. John Pick, in fact, did turn over part of his income to his mother, but he didn't do it for long. He returned to high school in January of 1949, where he stayed until just three days before he was scheduled to graduate. And at that very moment, he made a big move. John Pick left school in order to join the Coast Guard. Marguerite Oswell did not approve of this decision. That is, to go back and continue in high school to begin with. Apparently, because his mother was not approving, John Pick was forced to sign his mother's name to all of his own excuses and report cards, as the story goes. In telling this little detail, it was a story highlighted by the commission to punctuate how bad Marguerite was as a mother and how focused she was on using her sons to generate much-needed family income for the divorced mother of three. Again, John Pick thought that his mother overstated her own and the family's financial problems and was unduly concerned about money. Referring to the period after the divorce from Ekdahl, which was apparently caused in part by Marguerite's desire to get more money from him, Pick would tell the commission, Lee was brought up in this atmosphere of constant money problems, and I am sure it had quite an effect upon him, and also on Robert. Marguerite Oswell worked in miscellaneous jobs after her divorce from Ekdahl. When she worked for a time as an insurance salesperson, she would sometimes take Lee with her. In these moments, Marguerite would apparently leave him alone in the car while she transacted her insurance business. Again, another attempt by the commission to display her rather callous treatment of her children on an ongoing basis. There is no doubt that there is some truth about all of this. But again, after all, she was a single mom trying to make a living at a time in the U.S. when there wasn't much support for that. She clearly had shortcomings, as we will show later, and perhaps much of these conclusions are right. But this isn't the whole story of Marguerite Oswald. But we'll get to that in a later episode. The Warren Commission would say more about her insufficiencies as a mother. When she worked during the school year, Lee had to leave an empty house in the morning, return to it for lunch, and then again at night. Here again, the commission would emphasize that his mother had trained him to do that rather than to play with other children, an obvious setup in the narrative 
as to why he was a loner. They may have been right, but maybe not. He's probably not the only kid that was instructed to go straight home from school and stay there until their parents got home from work. Not a great model for sure when it comes to socialization of a youngster. He should have been out playing with his friends or riding his bike. But even though he might not have been doing that, it's not necessarily the stuff that makes men want to assassinate the president. All of this is more conjecture by the commission. But Lee's later problems make it easier to work backwards in a plausible way to reach back to these items as a root of his troubles, at least for purposes of their narrative. Whether these circumstances caused or at least contributed to other behavioral problems later, well, it certainly seems to point in that direction. But I am not sure anyone will ever know. It's a matter for us all to ponder as parents and adults and as jurors. That's right, to ponder the things that impact kids and shape their lives once they become adults. And ultimately here, the question of whether these things actually shaped the life of Lee Harvey Oswald in such a way that it contributed to the death of a president. In the spring of 1950, he traveled to New Orleans for two or three weeks to visit the family of his mother's sister, Mrs. Lillian Murat. Lillian Moret was married to Dutch Moret, a known member of the New Orleans Mafia. But that's another story for another episode. We'll get to those connections later. Despite his aunt's urgings on vacation, Lee refused to play with the other children his own age. Again, the inclusion of this point underscores the selective points contained in the Warren Commission report, all designed to focus on Lee's reclusive personality at that time all designed to reinforce the Warren Commission's narrative about this man. It also appears that Lee tried to tag along with his older brothers, but apparently was not able to spend as much time with them as he would have liked because of the age gaps of five and seven years, the Commission conjectured. Again, a bit of a silly comment for the Commission to include. As so many kids will tell you at that age, their big brothers and sisters don't always want them hanging around. Not always, and not all kids, but sometimes that's the case. Now let's turn to the move to New York City. Whatever problems may have been created by Lee's home life in Louisiana and Texas, he apparently adjusted well enough there to have had an average, although gradually deteriorating, school record, with no behavior of truancy problems. That was not the case, however, after he and his mother moved to New York in August of 1952, shortly before Lee's 13th birthday. They moved shortly after Robert joined the Marines, and they lived for a time with John Pick, the oldest brother, who was stationed there in New York with the Coast Guard. According to the Commission's narrative, relations soon became strained. So in late September, Lee and his mother moved to their own apartment in the Bronx, Pick and his wife would have been happy to have kept Lee. However, as Lee was becoming quite a disciplinary problem for his mother, and as the commission tells the story, he had already struck his mother on at least one occasion. Things were getting worse with Lee. The short-lived stay with the Picks was terminated after an incident in which Lee allegedly pulled out a pocket knife during an argument and threatened to use it on Mrs. Pick. When Pick returned home, Mrs. Oswald tried to play down the event, but Mrs. Pick took a different view of it 
and asked the Oswalds to leave. Lee refused to discuss the matter with his brother, John Pick, whom he had previously idolized, and their relations were strained thereafter. On September 30, 1952, Lee enrolled in PS 117, a junior high school in the Bronx, where the other children apparently teased him because of his Western clothes and Texas accent. He began to stay away from school, preferring to read magazines and watch television at home by himself. This continued despite the efforts of the school authorities and, to a lesser extent, of his mother to have him return to school. Truancy charges were brought against him, alleging that he was, quote, beyond the control of his mother insofar as school attendance is concerned, end quote. Oswald was remanded for psychiatric observation to a place known as Youth House, which was an institution in which children are kept for psychiatric observation or for detention, pending court appearance or commitment to a child-caring or custodial institution, such as a training school. Lee was detained in the Youth House from April 16th to May 7, 1953, at just about 14 years of age. During the time he was there, he was examined by its chief psychiatrist, Dr. Renatus Hartogs, and Lee was also interviewed and observed by other members of the Youth House staff. Marguerite Oswald visited her son at Youth House, and the commission found it necessary to quote her rather derogatory comments on the diversity of the kids there where she recalled that she waited in line with Puerto Ricans and Negroes and everything. The commission would go on to point out that she said that her pocketbook was searched because the children in this home were such criminals, dope fiends, and had been in criminal offenses that anybody entering this home had to be searched in case the parents were bringing in cigarettes or narcotics or or anything. Well, that was perhaps true. She recalled that Lee cried and said, Mother, I want to get out of here. There are children in here who have killed people and smoke. I want to get out. By the way, Lee Harvey Oswald hated cigarettes and smoking. Marguerite Oswald said that she had not realized until then in what kind of a place her son had been confined. On the other hand, Lee told his probation officer, John Caro, that While he liked Youth House, he missed the freedom of doing what he wanted. He indicated that he did not miss his mother. Another comment included by the commission to cement the idea that Lee did not like his mother and that her side of the story was naturally biased was from Mrs. Evelyn D. Siegel, a social worker who interviewed both Lee and his mother while Lee was confined in Youth House. And she reported that Lee confided that the worst thing about Youth House was the fact that he had to be with other boys all the time, and that he was disturbed about disrobing in front of them, taking showers with them, etc. Again, perhaps true, but another strategically placed comment by the commission to emphasize his desire for social isolation at that age and moment in life. The commission did make it a point to point out that, contrary to reports that appeared after the assassination, those earlier psychiatric examinations did not indicate that Lee Oswald was a potential assassin or potentially dangerous, or that his outlook on life had strongly paranoid overtones, or that he should be institutionalized. 
What the psychiatric examination by Dr. Hartogs did find was that Lee Harvey Oswald was tense, withdrawn, and an evasive boy who intensely disliked talking about himself and his feelings. <laughs> wow, isn't that a startling revelation about a 14-year-old boy that he doesn't want to talk about his feelings? Again, maybe a sign of something, maybe not. I'm just saying. Dr. Hartog went on to further note that Lee liked to give the impression that he did not care for other people, but preferred to keep to himself so that he was not bothered and did not have to make the effort of communicating. The commission would go on to conclude that Oswald's withdrawn tendencies and solitary habits were thought to be the results of, I quote, intense anxiety, shyness, feelings of awkwardness, and insecurity. They were likely right. But again, what does all that mean? What did it all possibly translate into? We need to see more and know more. Lee was reported to have said, I don't want a friend and I don't like to talk to people. And I dislike everybody. He was also described as having a vivid fantasy life, turning around the topics of omnipotence and power through which he tries to compensate for his present shortcomings and frustrations. Dr. Hartogs summarized his report by stating the following. This 13-year-old, well-built boy has superior mental resources. Okay, let's stop right there. Even the Warren Commission recognized he was no dummy, and this young man, Oswald, was relatively smart. And this is a point that should not be lost. Hartog went on to say that he functions only slightly below his capacity level in spite of chronic truancy from school, which brought him into youth house. No finding of neurological impairment or psychotic mental changes could be made. Lee has to be diagnosed as a, I quote, personality pattern disturbance with schizoid features and passive aggressive tendencies. The sum total of it all was said this way by Dr. Hartog. Lee has to be seen as an emotionally quite disturbed youngster who suffers under the impact of, of real and existing emotional isolation and deprivation, lack of affection, absence of family life, and rejection by a self-involved and conflicted mother. Dr. Hartogs recommended that Oswald be placed on probation on condition that he seek help and guidance through a child guidance clinic. There, he suggested, Lee should be treated by a male psychiatrist who could substitute for the lack of a father figure. He also recommended that Mrs. Oswald seek psychotherapeutic guidance through contact with a family agency. The possibility of commitment was to be considered only if the probation plan was not successful. Lee's withdrawal was also noted by Mrs. Siegel, who described him as a seriously detached, withdrawn youngster. She also noted that there was a rather pleasant, appealing quality about Lee, this emotionally starved, affectionless youngster, which grows as one speaks to him. She thought that he had detached himself from the world around him because, and I quote, no one in it ever met any of his needs for love, end quote. She observed that since Lee's mother worked all day, he made his own meals and 
spent all his time alone because he didn't make friends with the boys in the neighborhood. She thought that he, quote, withdrew into a completely solitary and detached existence where he did as he wanted and he didn't have to live by any rules or come into contact with people. Mrs. Siegel concluded that Lee, and I quote, just felt that his mother never gave a damn for him. He always felt like a burden that she simply just had to tolerate, end quote. Lee confirmed some of those observations by saying that he felt almost as if there was a veil between him and other people through which they could not reach him, but that he preferred the veil to remain intact. He admitted to fantasies about being powerful and sometimes hurting and killing people, but refused to elaborate on them. He took the position that such matters were his own business. There was more testing to come for Lee. He would take a psychological human figure drawing test, and according to the commission, it corroborated the interviewer's findings that Lee was insecure and had limited social contact. Irving Sokolow, another youth house psychologist, reported the following. The human figure drawings are empty. Poor characterizations of persons approximately the same age as the subject. They reflect a considerable amount of impoverishment in the social and emotional areas. He appears to be a somewhat insecure youngster, exhibiting much inclination for warm and satisfying relationships to others. There is some indication that he may relate to men more easily than to women in view of the more mature conceptualization that he shows. He appears slightly withdrawn, and in view of the lack of detail within the drawings, this may assume a more significant characteristic. He exhibits some difficulty in relationship to the maternal figure, suggesting more anxiety in this area than any other. Hmm. I never knew you could conclude so much from stick drawings of human figures. Do they still use this technique? Obviously, and in all seriousness, these are reports that we should take seriously, read, and try to understand carefully as jurors. But also, I think we should put all of this information in perspective. Lee scored an IQ of 118 on the Weschler Intelligence Scale for children. According to Sokolow, this indicated a present intellectual functioning in the upper range of bright, normal intelligence. Again, an indication that he was no intellectual slouch. Sokolow said that although Lee was presumably disinterested in school subjects, he operates on a much higher than average level. On the Monroe Silent Reading Test, Lee's score indicated no retardation in reading speed and comprehension, and he had better than average ability in arithmetical reasoning for his age group. Lee told Caro, who was his probation officer, that he liked to be by himself because he had too much difficulty in making friends. The reports of Caro and Mrs. Siegel also indicate an ambivalent attitude toward authority on Oswald's part. Caro reported that Lee was disruptive in class after he returned to school on a regular basis in the fall of 1953. He had refused to salute the flag and was doing very little, if any, schoolwork. 
It appears that he did not want to do any of the things which the authorities suggested in their efforts to bring him out of the shell into which he, at least in the commission's words, appeared to be retreating into. He told Mrs. Siegel that he would run away if it meant that he would be sent to a boarding school. On the other hand, he also told her that he wished his mother had been more firm with him in her attempts to get him to return to school. The commission makes it a further point in spelling out that the reports of the New York authorities indicate that Lee's mother gave him very little affection and did not serve as any sort of substitute for a father. Furthermore, she did not appear to understand her own relationship to Lee's psychological problems. After her interview with Mrs. Oswald, Mrs. Siegel described her as a smartly dressed, gray-haired woman, very self-possessed and alert and superficially affable, but essentially a defensive, rigid, self-involved person who had real difficulty in accepting and relating to people and who had little understanding of Lee's behavior and of the protective shell he had drawn around himself. Dr. Hartogs reported that Mrs. Oswald simply did not understand that Lee's withdrawal was a form of violent but silent protest against his neglect by her and represents his reaction to a complete absence of any real family life. Caro reported that when questioned about his mother, Lee said, well, I've got to live with her. I guess I love her. It may also be significant that, as reported by John Pick, Lee slept with his mother until John Pick joined the service in 1950. This would make him approximately 10, well, almost 11 years old. Again, I'm not sure why the commission included some of these points so selectively. Well, wait a minute. Yes, I do. And so do you. The factors in Lee Oswald's personality, which were noted by those who had contact with him in New York, indicate that he had great difficulty in adapting himself to conditions in that city. His usual reaction to the problems which he encountered there was simply withdrawal. Those factors indicate a severe inability to enter into relationships with other people. In view of his experiences when he visited his relatives in New Orleans in the spring of 1950 and his other solitary habits, Lee had apparently been experiencing similar problems before going to New York. And as will be shown later, this failure to adapt to his environment was a dominant trait in his later life. Okay, let's say that again. The commission is saying that his failure to adapt to his environment was a dominant trait in his later life. It's kind of interesting. At 20 years of age, he defected to the Soviet Union. He may have come back, but he made one of the biggest, boldest moves that anybody could ever make in their life. It's kind of an interesting thing, the way psychologists work, isn't it? Finally, the commission corrects itself a bit on all of this, and they would say the following, and I think this is rather objective. It would be incorrect, however, to believe that those aspects of Lee's personality which were observed in New York could have led anyone to predict the outburst of violence, which finally occurred. Caro was the only one of Oswald's three principal observers 
who recommended that he be placed in a boys' home or similar institution. But Carl was quite specific that his recommendation was based primarily on the adverse factors in Lee's environment, his lack of friends, the apparent unavailability of any agency assistance, and the ineffectualness of his mother, and not on any particular mental disturbance in the boy himself. In front of the Warren Commission, Caro testified that there was nothing that would lead me to believe that when I saw him at the age of 12, that them would be seeds of destruction for somebody. I couldn't, in all honesty, sincerely say such a thing. Mrs. Siegel concluded in her report with a statement that, despite his withdrawal, he gives the impression that he is not so difficult to reach as it appears. And I think that a patient, prolonged effort in a sustained relationship with one therapist might bring results. There are indications that he has suffered serious personality damage, but if he can receive help quickly, this might be repaired to some extent. Lee Oswald never received that help. Few social agencies, even in New York, were equipped to provide the kind of intensive treatment that he needed. And when one of the city's clinics did find room to handle him, the record does not show that he was ever there. When Lee became a disciplinary problem upon his return to school in the fall of 1953, and when his mother failed to cooperate in any way, the authorities were finally forced to consider placement in a home for boys. Such a placement was postponed, however, perhaps in part at least, because Lee's behavior suddenly improved. Imagine that, the threat of institutionalization and his behavior improved. Before the court took any action, the Oswalds left New York in January of 1954 and returned to New Orleans where Lee finished the ninth grade. And then he left school to work for about a year. That's right, he only uh, formally had a ninth grade education. Then, in October of 1956, Lee Harvey Oswald, at the age of 17, joined the Marines. As I've said so many times in the past on this podcast, there's nothing like listening directly to the witnesses themselves. So let's take just a minute to listen to what Evelyn Siegel, the social worker who actually interviewed Oswald at Youth House, said about him on the PBS program Frontline. And let's also listen to what his brother Robert said on that same show. As a boy, the Bronx Zoo was a haven for Lee Oswald. He seemed to prefer the company of animals to people. He had not set foot in school for nearly two months when he was picked up at the zoo for truancy and taken to juvenile court. Lee thought he had better ways to use his time than go to school. He spent his days at the public library and museums, and endless hours learning the New York City subway system. I remember him vividly. He was a skinny, unprepossessing kid. He was not a a mentally disturbed kid. As a matter of fact, his IQ was better than average. He was just emotionally frozen. He was a kid who had never developed a really trusting relationship with anybody. 
from what I could garner, he really interacted with no one. He made his own meals. His mother left at around seven and came home at seven, and he shifted for himself. Uh, you got the feeling of a kid nobody gave a darn about him. He was just floating along in the world with no emotional resources at all. You go back to the, the death of the dad uh, two months before he was born, that's a tremendous impact. What Lee missed from his childhood in comparison to me was the whole family being together all the time, the continuity there, the stability, uh, the lack of stability, I think, entered uh, uh, into that to a large degree. Marguerite sent the older boys into an orphanage. Lee stayed with his mother. I don't know at what age mother verbalized to Lee the effect that she felt he was a burden to her. Certainly by age three, he had the sense that, you know, we were a burden. Thank you for listening to episode 102 of JFK, The Enduring Secret.